forge your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. So, Doc, when we ended the last episode, we were talking about dynamic resilience, where where you want to help people to get to this place where they've strengthened their autonomic nervous system, their brain-body connection. Why don't you talk about what that means? Yeah, I think we're we're in a we live in a culture where we want to get something off the internet really fast that tells us, hey, do this type, this box breath, or do this. Uh, type of meditation. Do this thing and it's going to resolve all your problems, right? The problem is, is that we're always changing. And even like in the area of breathing, and we'll get to this towards the end of the podcast in more detail, but in the area of the breathe, breathing, once I start breathing slowly, diaphragmatic breath, I'm actually going to start changing things. And if I just stay on the same pattern, I'm not really optimizing my system. So I need feedback about what I'm doing to actually alter even that diaphragmatic meditative breathing has to alter what my system's doing. There's a a phrase that goes way back before Aristotle. You've heard this phrase, no man steps in the same river twice because the man is not the same and either is the river, right? And the whole concept there is that we're changing. Every cell in your body is different now than it was two minutes ago, okay? You're going to get a whole new stomach lining in a few days, okay? You're going to replace your entire skeletal system in 10 years, okay? You're constantly changing, rejuvenating, making new skin cells. And so you're different. And how do we change or become dynamic in our resilience? Like I think of a, I have a quarterback that I've worked with for about 13 years now. And when I first started working with him, he would be as just as engaged when the team was on offense as when he was on the sidelines on defense. And I had explained to him the science behind, we need to now kick into parasympathetic, if we remember from the last podcast, because you've been in sympathetic and we have to even that system out. We have to be dynamic with what's going on. Every minute isn't a stressful board meeting that you're having, right? It's every minute isn't an argument. We need to be able to adapt and change. So we don't live in a static world. Mm -hmm. There's seasons, you know, the earth is spinning and it's spinning around the sun and we're whirling through the galaxy and whatnot. There's constant change, constant rhythms, constant seasons. And so we can't, and we can't think about being in uh, one state and simply shifting to another state. In a sense, what we have to do is be dynamically adjusting constantly, right? I mean, health is relative to what's going on around yes. us, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these rhythms are all woven throughout our life in milliseconds, in seconds of breath. Okay, think about your breathing, you inhale when you're out of oxygen and your body's in a crisis, okay, your, your heart is beating faster. So you inhale 
and you give it oxygen. And what does the heart do? It starts to beat a little bit slower. Now, the average of that is your pulse, but it's really upbeats and downbeats of a parasympathetic and a sympathetic rhythm. And so our breath has rhythm to it. Our days have rhythm to it. There's the daylight, there's, there's the nighttime, right? We see these rhythms, our circadian rhythm, which is a 20, little bit longer than 24 hours, but it's a 24-hour cycle, our circadian rhythm is, seasons of the year. These rhythms exist all over the place. Um, probably one, one thing that I experienced that drove this home um, a couple of years ago is we moved from Michigan, where we lived for 26 years, to this little town called St. Mary's, Georgia. And uh, one of the first things my wife and I did was we bought this little John boat, and we loved this thing, right? You know, We found out later we needed to upgrade the boat. But first, we had the John boat, and we took it out to this island uh, that was about 20 minutes away called Cumberland Island, beautiful place. And uh, we went out there, and we tied it to this palm tree, this John boat, and we went for like a three-hour hike. You know, it's great. You know, we lived in Michigan, done this kind of stuff before. Well, we came back, and all of a sudden, ocean had gone out 150 yards <laughs> and i'm like what is this for you know? our listeners who assume that the great lakes have tides the great lakes do not have tides so so i learned real quickly oh my goodness they're serious about high tide and low tide and we had to learn about when the oyster beds would be up and you could hit your boat on the oyster beds and when to dock your boat and how to dock your boat because the dock is going to change because the tide is changing. And on a macro level, that's happening, but it's also happening to me physically, right? Is the tide is changing and it's also happening to me emotionally, right? If you're in high tide right now, I can guarantee you something, you're going to experience low tide, okay? And I can also tell you when you're in low tide, there's hope for you to experience high tide, right? And so we have these rhythms inside of us and what may be good at one moment may not always be good at the next moment. And that's where we're going to learn more about this in other podcasts, but the, the whole concept of feedback and creating feedback loops that tell me what my body is doing, not just data for data's sake, okay? But actually using that information to know how to adjust my breathing, adjust my heart rate, adjust my sleep cycles, adjust my microbiome, adjust my hormones. All these different things are altering. There isn't just one size fits all. And when you think that it's one size, that I'm going to do the rest of my life this way, you're missing out on the beauty of how our body is changing constantly and how we need to adapt to it. Right. I mean, we live in this dynamic world, this cyclic world, and we are, as you say, we are cyclic. And thinking about that too, in terms of external demands, you know, you take an analogy like my, my golf clubs, right? Yeah. And if you were to say, well, which is the best golf club in your bag? Well, that's sort of a nonsense question, right? right. Because it depends on the situation. Am I on the tee box and I've got to carry 200 yards off the, of the water, then I don't want to hit a, you know, a sandwich. I don't. Maybe Bryson DeChambeau does. <laughs> yeah. I don't, right? Yeah. Uh, but if I'm in the bunker, a greenside bunker, I don't want the driver in my hand. Right. right? I, don't exactly. want to, I don't want to putt with my seven iron. So the thing is, is the challenge is to have the right tool 
for the job. Or maybe another analogy is if you think about having a sports car and you're going to go drive in the hills or the mm-hmm. mountains and you, know, you have to constantly upshift, downshift to react to the road, right? You can't right. be in one gear. And, and so the thing is, is that life is going to throw all these different things at you. There's times when you're going to need that adrenaline shock, right? Certainly if my house is on fire and I got to scoop my children and family photos up and get out the door before we all burn up, right? right? That's a good time to have an adrenaline burst and to be in fight or flight mode, right? But I can't live that way, right? you know? Conversely, there's going to be times when demands of life tell me I need to slow down or I need to listen or I need to be present or I need to this or I need to that, right? Or I, you know, we'll talk in future episodes about the different brainwave patterns, you know, SMR waves and theta waves. And there's all these different times where I need to be in these different states. So the challenge is not to find what's ideal. The challenge is, right, to be able to adjust and to be constantly dynamically adjusting to Absolutely. what's going on in me and around me, mm-hmm. right? That's what health would be, right? Health is that. But now then there's this term resilient, right? And, and you want to talk about resilient because life is going to throw stuff at you. Right. So resilient involves the ability to strengthen the system over time uh, to be able to manage these ups and downs and not to be set off kilter each time they happen. And so we know the word homeostasis, then uh, that's balance, right? Where something stays balanced. Uh, but there's another word, allostasis, which has to do with this push and pull, okay? That the reason we work out or lift weights is to create some resistance that we can then recover from. If I just kept lifting weights all the time and didn't have any parasympathetic downside, those muscles couldn't recover and get stronger. And that's what creates resilience in the muscle is not just the working out, but the recovery. And that's where so many of us are kind of missing the boat is, are we doing the right kind of recovery? Or, and that goes back to our sleep, which we're going to spend a lot of time on down the road is, is how is that recovery happening? But that resilience involves the push and the pull and balancing out that push and pull, which is referred to as is coherence, okay, is having an evenness on either side of the push and the pull. So I might go into a board meeting, okay, that I know is going to be stressful, okay, and I know I'm going to go into a little bit of sympathetic. I'm going to be real with myself and say this isn't going to kill me, but it is going to be stressful. And as I do that, I have the awareness of I'm kicking up the sympathetic. I'm activating the HPA axis. Okay. I may want a lot of carbs afterwards because my body demanded sugar. Okay. In a way, maybe I didn't need it to, but I'm going to leave space and time for an equal amount of recovery on the other end. The problem is, is when I don't balance that out, then I don't create that resilience that can strengthen the system for the next stressful event that happens. So when someone doesn't have this internal dynamic resilience, the natural thing to do is reach for a tool to assist us, right? I mean, if I can't do it myself, I get a tool. And so there's a lot of tools that we use to cope, right? Or so... I mean, the obvious ones, like you say, I'm going to go into a high demand situation. So I, I chug three Red Bulls, right? right? 
or I'm in a stressful situation. So I have some alcohol or some cannabis or I do whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm constantly looking for tools or I can't cope. So I go play video games or whatever, right? So we're finding these things because we don't have those internal resources to be able to step up to the demand or to be able to step down from the stressful situation or to deal with the boredom or to deal with whatever is going on around me. So now what I do is I use these tools like crutches, right? And you would talk about that because that's, you've seen so much of that in your career. People become reliant on these kinds of other coping mechanisms and tools. Yeah, I mean, great point. I think this brings us back to the autonomic nervous system that we talked about in the last podcast was uh, that the, the autonomic nervous system is managing this energy. So for that stressful board meeting or for that argument or that difficult situation, I'm going to get up into sympathetic and activate all these things. And I need to equalize that with an equal amount of parasympathetic. In our culture, when we experience sympathetic problems where we're stuck there, okay, so now (laughs) I'm not doing the balancing. And so now I'm having cardiovascular problems, right? I'm having high blood pressure. Um, I'm having panic attacks. Because if I go far enough down the sympathetic, In that direction, I'm going to feel like I can't breathe. I'm going to be just like a lion chasing me, right? And so I have this normal sympathetic response for being that high amped up without recovery. And that continues. And one of the things that happens, either it's prescribed drugs or other drugs that we use as a way to try to alter the autonomic nervous system without downshifting it internally, without teaching it to do something different. And so Um, medicines aren't that complicated, okay? Uh, They come out with new names, new brands, new commercials, uh, but they're pretty much, if you could put them into two categories, they're either going to push you from parasympathetic to sympathetic. So I'm immobile, I'm uh, I'm having energy issues, uh, and so I'm stuck in parasympathetic, and so I need something to kick me up. Uh, that also we see that in people with attention problems where they take an amphetamine to speed them up. So they go from parasympathetic to sympathetic. Now they're focused because their system's in a fight, fight response. Or I might take something to move me from sympathetic to parasympathetic. So a Xanax or Ambien or marijuana uh, will act as a way to move that system. But those all are like band-aids because I never really teach myself how to downshift into those states. So they're kind of a false representation of that. I liken that to, I think the, one of the best examples is sleep. So I go into my doctor's office, I can't sleep. I get the ambient and what does that do is it pushes me into parasympathetic, but it's really not a true circadian rhythm like we want to see happen in the brain. And we'll talk more about this down the road, but there's certain aspects of REM sleep where the brain has to be really activated to engage in REM sleep. But because there's so much sedation on board, I'm more sedated, like going into surgery, than I am really in a sleep cycle. So there's a downside to not doing an equal amount of recovery on the parasympathetic side. So, Doc, let me... Let me try something on for size here sure. and tell me if this makes yeah. sense. So in, what I hear you kind of saying is that what some of these drugs do is they actually 
interrupt or sever mm. the brain-body connection. So, for example, yeah. if my ANS is saying, oh my gosh, panic, 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 right? And it's sending out messages, signals to the other systems of my body that we talked about in the last right. episode. Panic, 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 panic. Because of all the learned operant responses, all the, the neural pathway stuff in my brain, it's like, oh man, you know, freak out, freak out, freak out. And then that's causing all these other systems in my body downstream from that to do stuff. Now, you give me a pill and it hasn't actually shut down my ANS from sending out the panic signals. What it's done is it's like severed the line. It's cut the phone lines so that, that the ANS is sending out those signals, but the message isn't getting through to my organs and other parts of my body. So in a sense, I go, wow, now I'm, I'm relaxed. But my brain is still racing 900 miles an hour. That hasn't relaxed, just was last the body or vice versa, mm-hmm. right? So what you're really not doing is getting at the root, like you say, going up to what's really causing it, which is the autonomic nervous system in my brain, the neural pathways, right? Which is occurring in the, the hypothalamus in my brain stem, mm-hmm. right? The, and the med- medulla Medula, oblongata, yeah. mm-hmm. right? This, these, these areas are buried deep in my brain where the spinal column meets the you know, the, the, the main part of my brain and, and buried deep in that unconscious part, those protocols, that programming is still running. It's still saying freak out, freak out, freak out, right. freak out. But what the marijuana has done or what the, you know, the Xanax has done or whatever is just severed the phone lines or the message line or whatever, right? It's not delivering those messages to the part of my body. So it gives me a false sense of feeling calm. Absolutely. Uh, it's, uh, there's two ways you're going to move the autonomic nervous system when it gets overactivated, you know, uh, whether those are really happening in your environment or your frontal lobe is creating these what if scenarios or these what about scenarios. There's two ways it's going to move. It's either going to be what's called a, a ligand gated change. And that is if I put enough external chemical in, in a certain way, it'll adjust the firing but that is going to have a certain amount of half-life. It's going to go out of your system. And then the firing is still there. So I could take Ritalin for 20 years. And the moment I stop taking it, I'm still back to the same problem. I could take my Zoloft, take Zoloft for 25 years. I stopped taking it. I'm still back because I haven't, I've done a chemical alteration of the autonomic nervous system. That's a ligand-gated change. Then there's something called a voltage-gated change, and that's what we are miraculous at as human beings, and that is learning. We can learn things, okay? I tell people, if I can learn physics or I can teach somebody physics, I can teach them to focus, okay? I can teach you to, to stop that reaction to that response through the right forms of feedback, but those voltage-gated changes are actually changes that occur in the firing of the neuron with the neurotransmitters that are learned now. It may take a little while to, to make so, those so happen. You, so you're altering the neural pathways. Those, what we talked about in the last episode, these, these sort of habitual conditioned things, my grooves, in a sense, that are running through my brain to react this way, react this way. Well, now if we, those were learned, now if we unlearn those and learn new ones... But I got a question for you, Doc, right? In your long career working with people, you know, in clinical situations and performance coaching and everything else, 
What's really like the long-term effect of sort of severing through drugs or alcohol or cannabis or these other kinds of things? What are the long-term effects of sort of disconnecting what's going on in somebody's brain from what's going on in their body? Because like, I'm just wondering, you know, if, if, if what I'm doing is kind of using drugs of whatever sort to sort of disconnect my body so it's no longer sort of responding to what's going on in my brain... Like, does that have a long-term effect where now yeah, my body and my brain are no longer really synchronized? I mean, what does that do to somebody psychologically or physiologically? Yeah. When we get more specifically into the brain waves, uh, particularly how uh, marijuana addresses alpha activity, which is a slowing down of the brain, uh, that initially can stop that sympathetic response uh, for a period of time, as long as the chemical's in there. It can also, over time, it's, it's, firing, it's releasing the same, causing the same release of alpha activity that contribute to depression. So you're addressing one thing, but you're creating something else. And this is a great example. I have a, um, a pro athlete that I work with, uh, elite athlete um, in tennis. And uh, this individual, uh, you would know his name, and he was using marijuana just constantly before matches. Uh, it, at first it worked, right? But now he was four years in and he was using so much that it was like he'd almost have to start a couple days before a big match, right? And um, when I started working with him, he's like, I hate what I do. I hate playing. I mean, this guy is elite, okay? Like, I can't stand my sport. I just want to, I can't wait to retire, be done with this. I, and he, he lost his passion for this because he had tried to address it this way. So uh, in the off-season, we worked with him, and we said, let's train your brain to do that response, but leave some of these other things activated in your brain. And um, recently, he got this huge honor uh, in his sport, and uh, he was talking to me. He says, Doc, I've never been happier in my life, because nobody else would know it, because they just think, you know, I was great before, and I'm, you know, I got another award. He says, but I love what I'm doing. And I love the fact that I don't have to just reach for this every single time. I now know how to downregulate when I need to downregulate. And I know how to upregulate. I'm working upstream on the brain. But just to see the look on this guy's face and to hear how his wife was responding and everything was just, it was just amazing that he could learn to get out of just these ligand-gated chemical alterations world where he was lost into a place where he just felt a new him. It was a new normal for him. Yeah. You know, you, we'll, we'll talk about sleep some of the time, but uh, in other episodes, I'm sure a lot. But one of the things about sleep that, you know, you've made the point a minute ago, and I, I know I've heard you make it many times over the years, that when you use uh, narcotics to induce sleep, right? What you're doing is what? You're just uh, calming the body, mm -hmm. right? But you can lie there with your brain going 900 miles an hour. Of course, you're not aware of that because you're sort of consciously sedated drop off. It. You're sedated it. But all of that, that 90% that's not conscious is still stressed. And, and this is where like dreams get weird and a lot of other kinds of things. And then over time, that has a, a cumulative effect, right? Where you talk about yeah. That? So uh, I remember back uh, when I uh, had an office setting where we would have literally hundreds of people come in 
uh, to the office, and uh, I was doing the assessments at that point. And I'd have these 50-some-year-old, 60-year-old individuals walk in, and um, they'd say, I'm having some memory problems. And I would say, when did you start taking your sleep aid? And they're like, I didn't tell you that yet. (laughs) And I was like, "Uh, I've seen this so many times, okay, is that you had a sympathetic issue in your 30s, whether that's from the environment you were in or hormonal changes going into menopause for a woman in her 40s or whatever it was, which is a crisis, definitely a crisis response, a sympathetic response in the body. And your knee-jerk reaction was to put this Band-Aid on it, was to sedate the, the brain. And it worked, but now you're having to pay the piper because it's 10, 15, 20 years later, and you altered something in that sleep cycle that was very important. And so when we look at sleep, you have your first four hours that are deep sleep, which sedating the body, and 90% of what's going there is body recovery. Sedating the body that during that time doesn't impact as much, but the next four hours, you're going into REM, and 90% of what's going on in that last four hours of sleep is brain recovery. Well, what people don't realize is in order for you to go into REM, your brain has to be super active. When you look at the EEG of somebody in REM, that's why dreams are so vivid, right? There's more electrical current in there than when you're awake, right? But if I've got all this sedation on board, I'm just kind of stuck in no man's land. I'm not able to cycle into those as dramatically. And those are my long-term investors. Okay, the, the deep sleep, the first half, the body, is the cash in my wallet for tomorrow, okay? But the REM sleep, that's my 401k. That's where at the end of the day, everything you're doing out there, whatever you're doing to make it in the world or go up the ladder, when you get to wherever you're trying to get to, you want your brain to be along with you. And I've worked with many billionaires, I said billionaires, okay, who have gotten to that point and their brain's not working. And they would give it all up for their brain to start working again. And it's, these decisions we make that we think are very simple and sometimes we're steered that way one way or another, but we don't step back and think, am I addressing the real upstream problem? Am I doing a volt? Am I learning? Am I doing the hard work to relearn how I should sleep, how I should focus, how I should be less anxious? So back to the dynamic resilient yes. part, right? So resilience, the ability to withstand, right? To, to resist or withstand things. To, to uh, be able to bounce back. Actually, I looked it up in the dictionary. Resilience actually means the ability to bounce back. Mm-hmm. So if you bend over a sapling tree, it snaps back. Um, you know, the big heavy oak tree doesn't snap back, right? So you want to have that sort of um, suppleness, right? But then also, again, that adjusts constantly for the varying demands of life and situations and whatever. So. Talk a little bit about how you train or how you strengthen that dynamic resistance. Because it isn't going in and just training to be in that optimal state. It's learning to react to all these different situations and under these different cycles. Talk a little bit about that, what that training looks like. Yeah, so I, uh, to be honest with you, I really, up until about two years ago, and I've been doing this for close to 30 years now. Two years ago, I really started to see that in the area of breathing, okay, which we do a lot of work on, 
that there is a totally different response in the autonomic nervous system when you become dynamic in your breath versus uh, when you just breathe the same way all the time. And I never realized that that would happen. So we developed, uh, we have software that gives an individual feedback on what their breathing's doing, but also how there's heart, the heart is responding to that. And there's something called coherence that happens when you breathe a certain way. And I've taught people for years, decades, how to breathe a certain way to get a certain level of coherence in their heart, where their heart gets out of sympathetic, gets out of parasympathetic, and is perfectly balanced. It's kind of got the even of both. It's going into parasympathetic, but it's equaling that out with just the right amount of sympathetic, and that's called coherence. About two years ago, we started to create feedback loops for people where every 20 seconds, they could see exactly what their heart's doing. And you remember, we go back to the beginning of the podcast, uh, no man steps in the same river twice because he's not, the man's not the same as neither is the river. Well, what I started to realize is those first 40 seconds that regimented breathing was helping calm the heart down, but it would only let it go so far. But if we gave feedback back to the person and showed, even during the state, now you're getting too parasympathetic in your breath, in your heart. Your heart is almost thinking you're supposed to go to sleep now, okay? We don't want it to go to sleep. We want it to stay calm and focused. So we would then adjust the breathing, give them feedback. Okay, you need to kick up your breathing a little bit because your heart started to crash a little bit too much. Not stay in the same box breath or this breath, but adjust it because your heart just told you, I'm slowing down too much and now I'm going to get real sleepy. So this is the difference between someone who goes on the internet and just looks at YouTube's on breathing exercises or whatever. It's not that those are necessarily bad. No. But again, it's one tool. It's like the one golf club in your bag rather than the full full set of clubs. Yeah. And so and this we started to see if we would um if they would all of a sudden everybody's different. So and every moment is different for everybody. All of a sudden they would stay in that pattern and the heart would actually start going a little bit faster than it need to. And so that feedback loop that we can provide through the computer, through the iPad, they can see it, and now we have them alter their breath ever so slightly. Now, they first have to know how to breathe in a good diaphragmatic way uh, at a certain pace. And so we're talking about just mild alterations. But we started to go into levels of coherence that in 15 years, I'd never seen in humans, never seen people do this. Like we... We kind of have a number that's around 250. You hit that number and it's like, you're pretty much a rock star, right? I was seeing players at some of these pro football teams get up in the thousands. I'm like, what is this stuff? Well, what we were doing was we're working with that understanding that we're dynamic. We're changing. Even when I sit down to relax, I'm changing. And I need to have feedback. I need a dashboard to see, well, how do I alter that? Just like the pilot operating the plane, right? I need to faster, slower, you know, I'm not going to descent. I'm going to ascent. Whatever I'm going to do, I need those dials. And so we provide those dials. And in doing so and adjusting some of the stuff, it's been amazing in human potential, what we've been able to see, something I've never seen before. And so people really learn the ability then, truly learn and train themselves to be able to react to the various situations and cycles and demands that life brings both internally and externally to sort of always maintain that even keel yeah it's it's no different i mean it's more complex to drive a car than really to learn to manage the autonomic nervous system 
I mean, think about what we're doing. Okay, we're cruising down the road at 70 miles an hour with the ball of our foot, you know, maybe having a conversation through speakerphone or with somebody next to us or listening to the radio, whatever we're doing. And then there's these other vehicles zooming past us and these semi-trucks, right? And there might even be some rain and whatever. And I'm keeping with the ball of my foot at 70 miles an hour. And somebody looks over at me and maybe something adjusts and they say, how fast are you going? Oh, I think I'm going about 72. And I look and I'm going 72. Are you kidding me? Well, why? How did you do that? You know, somebody who's never been in a car before, they can't do that. You did that with a speedometer. We created a feedback loop and that feedback loop became so much a part of your person that you don't even need it most of it. I mean, you still want to use it and you check it every once in a while, but you don't sit there and stare at it, right? That's giving you a glimpse into the capacity of what the brain and body can do if you give it feedback on itself. Way more powerful than any other ligand chemical change you try to do out there is these voltage-gated changes where you learn to optimize your brain and body. Wow. And that would be dynamically resilient, the ability to maintain 70 miles an hour regardless of what's going on and to be able to cruise through life and not be you know, constantly uh, buffeted by all these different things. So, wow, Doc, I can't wait to talk more about that in future episodes. Yeah, so, this is awesome. And yeah. the human body and brain, just even on your worst day out there, I want people to realize you're an amazing creature. You are amazing. You have the most amazing thing in the world, and that's that brain and that autonomic nervous system. Amen. Well, thanks, Doc. Yeah. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment? You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com.